Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth. I'm a marathoner, coach, and answer seeker. When I first started running at the age of 29, I had so many questions and what felt like nowhere to turn to for answers. And now I'm here to answer all your running questions about anything that you might want to know. If you're a new runner or you've been doing this for a long time, there's always something more to learn about running. So let's get started. My guest this week is Holly Samuel of Holly Field Nutrition. If you have been around the Running Explained world for a while, I'm sure you're familiar with Holly's work. She was also a guest back on season one talking about carb loading and glycogen in the context of uh, sport and race performance. And today she is back to talk also about carbohydrates. But in this episode, we're talking about low carbohydrate diets. Now, there have definitely been parts of other episodes with other dietitians and sports physiologists and uh, nutrition PhDs, variety of guests on this show who have talked about the benefits and importance of eating enough carbohydrates as endurance athletes, and also talking about issues that we might run into with low carbohydrate diets, but we've never actually talked about specifically the whole low carb thing. And today we're going to talk about it. Now, obviously, I feel like this this topic could probably be multiple episodes. We didn't want to go so long that you just ended up getting bored and turning it off. So we did cover what I am pleased to say is a, a fairly nuanced but intro level conversation to low carbohydrate diets for endurance athletes. Now, since listening back to the episode, I realized that we never actually defined what low carbohydrate means. I'm going to give you the definitions now. So according to the research, according to the literature, a very low carb diet is considered a, a diet that contains, and diet just means way of eating, right? Uh, contains less than 10% of your calories from carbohydrates and or between 20 and 50 grams of carbohydrates total per day. A low carbohydrate diet is when you are getting 26% or less of your daily calories from carbohydrate and or less than 130 grams per day. Uh, which So here's the thing. There's a reason that we talk about grams and there's also a reason we talk about percentages is that you, in your specific needs, what you need to fuel your body adequately, you may still be eating the technical definition of a low carbohydrate diet based on percent of calories, even if you are technically eating more than 130 grams of carbohydrate per day. So a moderate carbohydrate diet is between 26 and 44% of your calories from carbohydrate sources. And then a high carbohydrate diet is 45% or greater, right? So you can see, you know, there is some already some nuance in what the definition of low carb means, but broadly speaking, wanted to attach some of those basic definitions, right? So very low carbohydrates uh, are less than 10% of your calories from carbs between 20 and 50 grams of total carbohydrate per day, a standard low carbohydrate diet, if there is such a thing, less than 130 grams of total carbohydrate per day per day and or less than 26 percent of your calories coming from a carbohydrate source so that is where we start and we cover a good amount of ground in this if you have any specific questions about anything that holly says in this episode you should reach out and ask her sometimes when i have guests on the show i have people reach out to me with questions for clarification about something that my guest said and there's a reason that i have guests on who are experts in their field because they know more than me on on a variety of these topics this is literally holly's career she is a highly educated professional in this space so if you have any questions about something that she said I'm going to say, hey, go ask Holly. She knows more than I do. But please enjoy this conversation. I hope it provides some nuance into your understanding of this topic. Holly Samuel, welcome back to the show. I'm so excited to have you here again. 
Me too. Thank you so much for having me. I always, I always am honored to be on the Running Explained <laughs> podcast because I listen to every single. Oh, episode. thank you. <laughs> uh, and you are a podcaster yourself. Your podcast is excellent and dives into more of the, um, say, really specific niche topics, specifically around, well, you know, sports dietetics because you are a sports dietitian. Uh, tell us what you've been up to recently since it's been. Oh my God. You've been on the show since season one, which is crazy because I feel like you and I talk all the time in real (laughs) offline in real life. (laughs) Yeah. And you've been on my show, I think a couple of times since then too. So I kind of get lost in the timeline, but, um, yeah, the last time I came on here and talked about carbs was probably in 2021. That's crazy. Um, but yeah, since then, um, we got a bit of a, a name change. I used to be fit cookie nutrition. My new name is Holly fueled nutrition now. Um, yeah, I think I was in New Hampshire last time, but just in case I wasn't, I moved back to New Hampshire from North Carolina, um, and have probably run a bunch more marathons since and have worked (laughs) with a lot more runners. So that's kind of what's going on on my end, but yeah, I do have a podcast. It's the Holly field nutrition podcast. And I do talk a lot about like sports nutrition and get into the nitty gritty of nutrition topics as it pertains to endurance athletes. And today we're talking about, and I've wanted to do this episode for a long, long time. We are talking specifically today, we're going to have a pretty honest and hopefully relatively nuanced conversation about low carbohydrate diets for endurance athletes. Um, I have been very upfront in previous episodes about my experience as a low carbohydrate athlete and the health problems it caused me. And I've talked to other you, you, you're uh, in season one, we talked about carbohydrates, carb loading, glycogen. um, But I've had multiple other dietitians on the show talking about carbohydrates for endurance runners. And yet, and yet we still live in a world where low carbohydrate protocols, ways of eating are still very, how do I say this? I don't even say trendy. They are one of the things that we are talking about, not in just like kind of the health space, right? But there are still plenty of endurance athletes who are using, experimenting, or are curious about utilizing a low carbohydrate protocol in their training. And like many things, In this space, there is a lot of gray area, but I wanted to come on with you today and talk more about that there is some gray area. There is some nuance. It's not all black and white. It's not carbs, good, this, flat, the other. It's like, look, there are going to be some people who are going to respond more to this, but generally speaking, we're looking at that. Now, as a sports dietitian, how, let me ask you this. How often do you see athletes come to you who have been following a low carbohydrate approach to their training? That's a good question. I think intentionally, probably like a third to half of my clients have probably intentionally been following a low carb um, something, whether it's a diet or their macros that they were given by like a macro coach or they've worked with a dietitian who doesn't focus in sports, um, who's kind of told them that, um, or the running coach, that's a big one too, or, you know, some guy on the internet. Um, (laughs) and then I think probably unintentionally, most of my clients, um, are probably not eating enough carbohydrates to support the goals that they tell me they're looking to pursue. Um, And I do think that does have a lot to do with just some of the misinformation out there around like what, we need to be fit, active, healthy people. Um, I see a lot of the times 
the information that goes out there regarding that doesn't always translate well to like endurance athletes with a goal to like run, you know, as fast as they can in like a half marathon or a full marathon or something like that. So long story short, probably most of them, um, whether it's intentional or unintentional kind of depends on the And I think we'll be talking today more about people who are intentionally pursuing a low carbohydrate way of eating and kind of upfront to say, you know, we're not talking about the general population. Uh, But I will say I know a ton of people who are saying, well, I don't, I'm not that active, you know, I don't really count. And they're running three days a week and they're in the gym twice a week. Like, look, that, that by definition is so much more active than the average Western person, right? Like, so if you think, well, I'm not an ultra marathoner, I'm not even a marathon, I'm not even a half marathoner. Like, I just like to run my 30 to 40 minutes three times a week. And maybe I also, you know, go to Pilates or go to the gym. Like you are dang active, (laughs) whether you realize it or not. Um, So we are talking about people. And if you're listening to the show, you're probably on the more active end of the spectrum. But we're talking about people who are intentionally engaging in carbohydrate restriction uh, as as active individuals. Um, Let's talk about the hook, Uh, because this got me. This got me that the the premise of why a low carbohydrate diet is so alluring to endurance athletes is because of the claims that if you can just shift your body to be able to burn body fat instead of carbohydrate, you will essentially have an endless source of energy because carbohydrate is finite and your glycogen stores will run out. And I don't know, that sounds really awesome. That's what got me. So like, oh, cool. All I have to do is just not eat carbs. My body will learn to run on fat. I'll become quote unquote fat adapted and I will have endless energy forever. Um, but the body's a little more complicated than that. Tell us about what's actually happening in our bodies and what this fat adapted thing actually means. Yeah, that's so interesting too that that's the hook like that's you know what what the hook was for you because I think I do see that really often especially in like the more like science nerd performance corner of the internet. Um and I think we'll talk about this probably later too. The other hook I think often has to do with body composition and sometimes those overlap. So it's like, yeah, you'll have endless energy and you'll have the perfect body, right? Uh, who doesn't want that? Um, <laughs> but yeah, in terms of like what's actually happening. So the argument often for fat adaptation and a fat adapted athlete, and it tends to be more so in my experience geared towards like endurance athletes who are running like longer distances, like half marathon and above, um, is typically when we're running those longer distances, we are, it's not that it's like lower intensity. So if you're racing a marathon, you know, it's still a very intense event, but it's not quite as high of a percentage of your VO2 max as something like a mile race or a 5k. Um, And I know any marathoners listening to this are going, oh, yeah, like if you run longer distances, you tend to like hate those shorter distances because you know that it's a different kind of hurt. Um, And the reason for that is that, you know, if you're racing a longer distance, there is going to be more fat used for energy um, compared to some of those shorter, more intense distances. And we're talking like, you know, full max effort for both um, options. So Typically, the harder you're working, it tends to be a shorter distance, a less amount of time, and more carbohydrates burned. The longer you're working, 
it tends to be a longer amount of time. You're going a bit slower. No one's mile pace is the same as their marathon pace. Um, you know, if you're truly going all out and a higher percentage of fat burned compared to carbohydrates from the mile. So you're still burning carbohydrates to race a marathon or a half marathon or something that's longer in distance an ultra marathon. Um, but you're also using fat for fuel as well. So the argument behind why don't we all just become fat adapted if we are endurance athletes racing these longer distances is if you think of like a unit of fat, um, it has a lot more energy density to it um, compared to like a unit of carbohydrate or glycogen. And like you said, we have a lot more fat storage capabilities in our bodies than glycogen. Like we probably can store and if you go back and listen to the last episode of this podcast that I was on, um, we talked more about this, but you know, we could probably store about 2000 calories of glycogen. Um, we could store, you know, way more than that in terms of fat when it comes to calories, which is just a unit to measure energy. The snafu, um, with this, you know, is okay. If we could just figure out how to be fat adapted and burn more of our fat for energy and have our body kind of um, you know, be geared more towards burning fat for fuel and being trained to burn fat for fuel instead of carbohydrates. Um, you know, we, we probably have more energy that way, but the snafu is that it takes actually a lot longer to convert that fat into usable ATP energy. The process is just a lot more complicated. It takes a long time. It's kind of like our low and slow gear compared to how quickly we can turn carbohydrates into fuel, which while it's less ATP per unit of carbohydrate compared to fat, it's a lot quicker. So we can do it more efficiently if we have this well-trained. Um, so even if you do have a finite amount, you know, of glycogen storage or what you're able to like take in through gels during the run to keep your blood sugar at a certain level, um, you know, that's finite, but it's something that we can train to be very useful. So we can keep the intensity high at those longer distances. Because if you've ever hit the wall in a marathon or a half marathon, you know, basically that feels like your legs are slowing down no matter what you try to tell them to do. Um, and that's kind of your body switching over to ran out of carbs, got to burn fat for fuel, and we have to slow down in order to do that. And it is a relative, relatively low intensity. And I know it's like you said, it's kind of silly to think of, you know, racing a marathon at low intensity. But yeah, I mean, if you're if you're a four hour marathoner or a five hour marathoner, that is going to be, you know, it, it, it helps, I think, to think less about finishing time and more about how long it takes you to cover a distance. Right. So, you know, if somebody's a, a one hour half marathoner versus a one hour 10K runner, like both those runners are at their lactate threshold. Right. And so, you know, if you're and that's still a relatively high intensity, um, but thinking about intensities at which we are burning primarily fat you know, that can be, that happens in that beautiful aerobic, below your aerobic threshold, which is where we do a lot of that zone two run or even some low zone three running. But it's typically going to be people who are doing, you know, four hour, five hour, six hour marathons, ultra marathons, those types of things. Um, the, but I want to ask you this too, because there, I think this is where things get really tripped up. And this is what I was kind of at this sciencey person too. And I also approach this with a body composition goal. But that there are studies that show that with carbohydrate restriction, your fat oxidation improves. Um, that if you remove carbohydrates from an endurance athlete's diet and then measure how much fat they're oxidizing in that you know uh, high carbohydrate versus that low carbohydrate state, their rate of fat oxidation goes up. 
But whether or not that translates to any performance improvements is, I think, TBD. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's whenever I'm talking with my clients, especially when, like, you know, I'm trying to let them fly on their own. I'm like, you know what you know now. You don't need me anymore. Or we can check in less frequently. Um, we talk about, like, how to handle research headlines that come out, claims that are made. I kind of call it diet talk in the wild. Um and one big thing that I talk about, yeah, is like a lot of headlines around fad diets or scientifically backed things like low carb, you know, there is going to be some science with it. Like a lot of people aren't just totally pulling everything, you know, out of their rear. It's a lot of the times does have some credibility. Um, what my job is to kind of is to understand what the science and the research is saying, um, to understand what population it does or does not apply to and to put it in context with the individual, you know, that I have in front of me, which is why, you know, your podcast is fabulous. Um, there's so many great podcasts out there that talk about research, but none of it's individualized, you know, advice because we don't know you, all of you that are listening, right. You're all different, you know, special snowflakes. So, um, the, um, kind of fat adaptation piece with the, yeah, the research to back it, a lot of what we see in endurance athletes and in like the athletes that they're studying um, is exactly what you said. Like if you do train your body to be more fat adapted, you will have higher fat oxidation rates, which means, yeah, you will be more fat adapted. <laughs> like it's kind of like, um, you know, if you dunk something in water, it will be more wet. That makes that just makes sense. But it's like, OK, whether or not that's translating to being beneficial and what risks kind of go along with that and do the risks outweigh the benefits for my job for this specific human in front of me. That's kind of where a lot of stuff just gets lost in translation on <laughs> the Internet. Um so yeah, my understanding of most of the endurance athletics research on fat oxidation and fat adaptation is yes, you can absolutely train yourself to be more fat adapted, to do better burning fat for energy at those higher intensities, but there isn't a significant performance outcome. And there do tend to be more risks with certain populations to going down this route, in particular females, in particular people who are under fueling, in particular people who have GI distress which I, I talk to those people a lot. So, <laughs> And I, I think it, it's that kind of trade-off, right? And it's going to depend on the person. And, you know, we're not here to tell people what to do. Like you said, it's highly individualized. If there is a person who wants to take the risk, right? You know, right. it okay, right? We're not here to say, like, do or do not, right? This is all, we all kind of exist on a spectrum. I want to talk about the body composition component of this too, because, um, and I, I'm going to go ahead and, and blame this on the treadmills at the gym. <laughs> yeah. When you are, you know, or you're on the elliptical or you're on the erg or whatever you're on and they have your heart rate zones on the little monitor and they, they label one of the zones, the fat burning zone. And if you don't really know much about sports science and about physiology, what do you think of when you hear fat burning? For me, I think, Ooh, burn body fat. Let's blast that body fat. I think in this zone, I will like you said, get that dream body that we've all been sold. Talk about what fat oxidation and like your body using fat as a fuel source and what at versus like, quote unquote, fat burning in a diet culture, body recomposition sense and what's actually going on in this zone. I love that you brought that up. Ah, the treadmills at the gym. Um, 
I totally have had that thought before. Yeah, you're like fat burning zone. And what's so funny is that it's not like it's the highest intensity, right? It's like in the middle or towards the lower end of intensity. So people are like, sweet, I can just like walk and burn some fat, <laughs> um, you know, and my body composition will be significantly changed at the end of this. Um, yeah, no, it's a good point. And I think it's something that is kind of used to sell this type of eating style um, to people who just don't know any better, who don't have degrees, you know, or a lot of education in exercise physiology or anatomy and physiology. Um, so yeah, we're talking about like burning fat. I'm not talking about your physically shedding the fat off of your body and your composition is looking more lean. That's not what we're talking about. It basically means we are using fat that is on your body for energy. Something that can actually happen with this too is your body can also become a bit more adept to store fat for energy when we are always using fat for energy and we're never kind of challenging the carbohydrate burning side of things. Um, so I kind of tell people like, Poor choice of words, um, you know, for the kind of tread, treadmill heart rate graph. Um, you know, yeah, you will be burning fat for energy during those lower intensity things. We're doing it right now, just sitting here, you know, talking on the podcast. We're always burning fat for energy. It's our low and slow gear. Um, but if you are trying to achieve performance outcomes, you know, burning only fat for energy probably isn't going to have the, the most bang for your buck outcomes. Um, and when we're talking about body composition, yeah, you know, when we want to change our body composition, there's just a lot more that goes into it than what heart rate zone you're in when you're exercising and what unit of, you know, tissue and molecules you're using for energy. You know, we can lose body fat by safely being in a caloric energy, total energy. So that includes protein, fat and carbohydrates deficit, you know, to lose body fat and to lose, that can help us lose muscle mass too, if we don't do it properly. Um, and you know, if we do want to achieve the more, the word I always hear is like toned, um, body physique, body composition, you know, that kind of has people probably looking more towards gaining muscle mass, which would have different nutrition recommendations. Um, and again, doesn't really matter what heart rate zone you're in and what you're burning for energy. It just has to do with what you're putting into your body, how much you're expending and how like the rest of your physiology and health status generally is in order for that to actually have an outcome that you want it to have. And of course, genetics play a big role in this as well. One of the big pushbacks, and this is this is one of the pushbacks that I had too when I was looking at research and people who were advocating for low carbohydrate diets for endurance athletes and for performance, is that when when we look at studies that show, and there are a ton of them that show that you know that to look at performance, that look at like you said some of the risks involved with low carbohydrate diet, and as we all hopefully kind of know how studies work, right, is we usually take uh, two or more conditions and we kind of compare them, right? So maybe it's the same group of people who are being exposed to two different conditions, right? So if you have the same group of people who's doing a, a high carb protocol first and then a low carb protocol second or whatever it is, you have two groups and you split blah, 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 right? Um, is that when there was research that said, or, you know, kind of concluded or said, based on our findings of this study, the low carbohydrate protocol was not superior to a carbohydrate um, state, is that 
the pushback from the low carb community is, well, you didn't give those people enough time to become fat adapted, right? Oh, you only gave them a week. Oh, you only gave them two weeks uh, to, to adapt. And that's not enough time. You need way more time than that to let your body to fully fat adapt to this way of eating. Um, and I've talked about this on another episode that I have with Dr. Adrian Chavez, who is a, is a PhD in nutrition, about this um, communities or uh, when you, if you're not doing it correctly, it's somehow your fault. Like if you're not seeing the performance benefit, right, you're doing something wrong. But I want to talk about that because I think it's important to point out areas of further exploration in the, in science, right, when we could be doing things better or differently for next time to learn more about a topic. But also, like, it can't be that every single study just didn't give them enough time to adapt. <laughs> yeah, um, I looked up. I love Dr. Chavez. He's great. I love his work. But um, yeah, it's so true. Like as someone who spends a lot of time reading research and has participated in research and helped lead research, I'm not a PhD, but you know, those are all things I participated in. Research is really great. It also is something that, you know, we don't want to be like research limited. You know, if there's still clinical observations or anecdotal personal experiences that people have, like those are super valid um, research is not perfect. We cannot have, especially nutrition research, like, you know, people are lab rats in a vacuum. Um, you know, we can't tell people to follow a specific diet for, you know, however long it's going to take for them to become fat adapted. That makes the fat adaptation community happy, you know, a couple of years and then have them do a washout period and then switch to the opposite for several years. Like, yeah, ethics are a thing here. <laughs> yeah, like the IRB, you know, that kind of approves studies and has a lot to do with ethics. Like they're never going to approve that. And no human is ever going to actually do that either. Like people will drop out and then your research and your study doesn't have much credibility. Um, so, you know, research is not perfect. That's kind of my caveat to that. Um, in terms of like giving people enough time to be properly fat adapted, I mean, I think the same argument could probably be had for being carb adapted. You know, if you give them more time, yeah, they're probably going to be more carb adapted and then they might get more performance or health benefits out of that. Um, I think the devil's advocate that I would say for if we could, in a perfect world, um, have someone be fat adapted for, a, I'm just going to say like a year and then switch and be carb adapted for a year. Yes, we would be exposing their physiology to longer um, experiences with those potential adaptations. And we'd be able to see if there were indeed different performance benefits compared to like a three week study. But also we'd be exposing them to the risks <laughs> for longer too. Um, so, I mean, I do think if I could have my way, you know, having that research would be super interesting. Um, I also think, you know, you can't have the argument, you know, be kind of both ways um, without kind of considering the risks. Um, and you've kind of mentioned this yourself, which is where I get into the anecdotal experiences, clinical observations. I do see people who have tried to be fat adapted for a year, couple months, several years, and they have had performance benefits until they don't, <laughs> um, right? So th those people's experiences are valid too, you know, and then conversely, we kind of see what we need to do to have them improve their performance and their health. Cause a lot of the times, again, the risks that I've been talking about have to do with their health status. Um, and then, you know, maybe they're carb adapted or they're somewhere in the middle where their body's happy for a longer period of time. And that's where we can start to see more benefits, less risk. So 
the anecdotal stuff is what I see in my clinical experience, working with actual humans for like long periods of time who have had experiences previously to working with me for long periods of time. Um, but yeah, the research is mostly short-term, especially for like on athletes. What I think is interesting is, um, Trent Stellingworth, who's a great researcher in the area of, of nutrition and performance. Um, you know, he works with elite athletes. His wife is an elite athlete. Uh, he actually, this was on Twitter. Yes. I'm like referencing, he said on Twitter recently, <laughs> basically in response to somebody's, you know, uh, positing about low carbohydrate diets for endurance performance. And he's like, said something, and I'm totally paraphrasing here. He said something to the effect of, if there was a performance benefit for elite athletes, don't you think I would be using it in my elite athletes? He said, if this made my elite athletes faster, don't you think we'd be doing this? Mm -hmm. You know, and yet we are seeing time and again that the best in the world are, you know, relying very much on carbohydrates as part of their daily diet, but also before, during and after their events. And Kipchoge, as you know, because since you interviewed Klaus, his bottle man, you know, Kipchoge takes... I think over a hundred grams of carbohydrate per hour in his races. Um, it's kind of basically the opposite of a low carb approach. And, you know, the other thing that kind of gets me about this is that I feel like there is a very much an element of the superiority in that I found something that mainstream, you know, science, like, first of all, who is that doesn't want you to know, like, you know, and it feels like when you are joining this low carbohydrate community, it feels like you're joining this kind of exclusive club who's figured something out that nobody else has figured out. And that makes you feel good. It makes you feel special. It makes you feel, I'm going to say it, a little morally superior, right? Um, and that's a weird reason to believe something that science is not really showing if it's, you know, proven or not. And I know we don't really prove things with science, but you know what I mean? It's like you're joining the resistance of Star Wars. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Except, you know, I think they had carbs in the resistance. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. I know the um, it's so true. Like I've even seen claims from different PhDs like who work with um, like, you know, African runners who are elite athletes come out and say things like, oh, you don't actually need to eat before any workouts that are less than two hours. And it kind of has to do with the fat ad adapted. You should have plenty you know, of glycogen stores, any calorie you're eating before a run that's less than two hours is just going to be stored as fat. And then you're going to get fat and then you're not going to perform well. That's kind of like some of the narrative that I've heard. Um, and a lot of those claims, like it's just really grossly taken out of context too. I'm like, they're assuming that a recreational athlete, one, doesn't have any other responsibilities, <laughs> which isn't true. We work, you know, we have families and stuff. Um, we don't dedicate our entire lives to training. Two, we're assuming they're eating enough on a daily basis to have glycogen stores, which my experience working with people, a lot of people aren't doing that. Um, and three, you know, we're assuming that they um, wouldn't get a performance benefit potentially out of having more carbohydrates, which just through the short-term studies that we have, we know that that's just not true. Like they would probably get a little bit more out of their training if they ate <laughs> enough before their training. Um, so yeah, I mean, the... I've heard certain elite athletes talk about trying fat adaptation and some of them um, tend to do things that, yeah, do seem against the norm of what a lot of sports dietitians are saying. Um, and they kind of like to play around with science and they kind of like to interpret studies and apply them to themselves and use their own bodies as experiments, which like you're more than welcome to do. It's your own body. Um, 
I've never heard of one following it long term because typically there are risks with long term and there's not, you know, significantly more or even equal benefits to doing it the other way. Um, the, the common sense argument that I always make too, which again, common sense doesn't always translate to evidence-based practice because sometimes we do research and it's actually not what we thought and your hypothesis was wrong, but um, it never made sense to me that like the longer we're running and the more we're running and the more training we're having to do to support that long-term race goal that's a long distance, why would we be eating less? <laughs> um, because a lot of the times the fat adaptation community wants to do fasted workouts. You know, we don't want to eat while we're running. Um, we want to be low carb. And for a lot of people, one of the risks is that they'll end up just not eating enough in general. They'll, you know, not be meeting their energy needs, which we know has a lot of long-term risks. So that's something that never made sense to me either. Like we're doing more exercise, so we're going to eat less. Like what? <laughs> that actually, that brings up one of the questions. Another thing I wanted to bring that kind of that pushback, another thing that I hear often um, is that people are missing the, 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 pushback goes, people are misconstruing low carbohydrate diets in that if, as long as you're not in a caloric deficit, yeah. you'll be okay, right? That it's the caloric deficit, the long-term deficit that's actually the problem. Um, but the whole, what you said about, you know, if you're attempting or, you know, in a quote unquote fat adapted state, you know, why would you eat before your workout? Because the whole premise of being fat adapted is like you don't need to eat food, which is like if you play the tape forward and kind of run this out to its log logical conclusion, it's like, well, at one point, will you need food? Like is the point of becoming, and it is like spitballing here, but like thinking about it logically, right? We apply logic to some of these concepts. And um, if I think about it logically, at what point, will you like are you are you supposed to survive on no food like forever and ever and ever when obviously i'm i'm being you know i'm facetious here but yeah that is one of the arguments is that it's not the carbohydrate restriction it's the caloric deficits that's the problem and as long as you eat enough calorically if you are in a eucaloric state you'll be fine yeah and and that might be true you know like that might be true but that's my point is that when we take some of this the hard science and we apply it to real people that's where it's like, well, yeah, that comes back to the argument of, oh, they must have not been doing it right, or they must have not been doing it enough. And it's like, yeah, because it's really hard to do it correctly and to do it enough. It's not realistic long term for a lot of humans who are not, you know, elite athletes and have a lot of other stuff going on or food preferences or food allergies or, you know, whatever it is. Um, so even if that, you know, were true, just again, play devil's advocate again, like what people are going to be able to do consistently um, and realistically is also me meeting people in the middle and where they're at. Like, yeah, I actually had a doctor for a while that was referring a lot of clients to me back when I worked in diabetes education. And his thing, his like thing that he was on was he had read a book, I forget what the book was, but it was about being like a raw vegan for blood sugar control. Um, so he was sending a lot of clients to me saying, there's research, this book that says if you are a vegan or a raw vegan, your diabetes will go away or you'll have great blood sugar control. And I mean, people would come to me in tears, like they didn't want to be a vegan. That was never going to happen. You know, they were coming to me with, you know, financial, you know, um, things to consider or they don't know how to cook or they don't have access to fresh produce. Um, 
And even if, which again, you don't have to be a vegan to have good blood sugar control. That's not what this is about. But um, even if that were true and that was like the absolute best way, it's not if you can't do it. <laughs> um, you know, so I think that all or nothing mindset comes into diet claims a lot um, in the endurance community. So yeah, I mean, for fat adaptation within itself, um, yeah, I mean, even if it can give you just as good results as carbohydrate adaptation, for a lot of people, again, there's risk. And for some people too, it may not be the most you know realistic thing for them to actually follow long-term. And that's to follow long-term, to follow long-term, right? That's the goal here. And I mean, I think that any, probably most people uh, that who are listening to this podcast who exist in the world have probably, I'm going to go on a limb here, probably tried at least one different quote unquote diet over the course of their lives, right? And what we know about when you say, you know, the traditional long-term adherence to a specific way of eating is that, you know, if you are committing irrespective of any of the risks or benefits, right? We're, we're going to set all of that aside completely and say, let's pretend that this way of eating was entirely the same to any other way of eating. It is still one that may be very hard to adhere to long-term. It is restrictive, right? It is expensive. Animal products are expensive. Um, it is, it's just a, it's just a, and for, you know, there are some people who say, well, it doesn't, I, I don't mind making the effort. Like that would be important enough to me where I'd make the effort, right? There are plenty of people who go out of their way to, you know, do certain things because that's what they genuinely believe in. But if we're looking for something that the average busy person is going to be able to easily fit into their life, this is probably not the easiest, yeah. And I mean, some people could argue the converse too, where they're like, mm -hmm. taking so many gels during my runs is inconvenient. I don't like doing it. It's expensive. It's hard to carb load. It's hard to buy all the carbohydrates. I have to meal plan and prep. You know, it takes a lot of intentional effort to do anything differently with your diet. Like we are all creatures of habit. We all kind of do things in a certain way, whether it's good for us or not good for us, because it's kind of the path of least resistance we found to get through our day. Um, and when I start working with people it tends to be when that path is not serving them well. <laughs> so, you know, we need to make interventions. Um, and anyone here who's worked with a dietitian before listening knows that most dietitians will probably go about making those interventions very slowly, <laughs> very gradually with kind of like a trial and error mindset. Nothing is absolute. We can tweak things, try this one thing this week and see how it goes. Okay, then we'll try this other thing a different week and see how it goes rather than trying to change way too many things at once. Um, so, you know, when it comes to making those changes that are going to maybe be hard because you have to put some intention behind it, um, it kind of does depend again, like what works with your lifestyle. The example I use too is like, if you are someone who's like training to be on like survivor, or if you need to like kayak across the ocean because you're trying to break a world record and you can only carry so much food on you. Yeah, it might be more realistic for you to be fat adapted because like you're not going to be able to carry all the food that you need. And if your body is more used to you giving it the fuel that it needs through carbs and you don't, it's probably going to backfire in your face. Um, so yeah, for very specific situations like that, it might be, it might make more sense, you know, to be fat adapted and to learn how to exist off of less for a short specific period of time. Um, but for a lot of people, again, 
even if it's harder for them to add the gels and add the carbs for performance, um, a lot of the times it helps them meet their goals with less risk, which is the biggest thing. So if like, it's going to be hard for you to be really low carb and it's going to be hard for you to have enough carbohydrates, but one of those proposes less risk and potentially more long-term benefits, then it's like, that would be the path of least resistance. What about the concept of training low racing high, where you train in a low carbohydrate state and then on, you know, race day or at key moments of your training cycle when you're chasing specific performance benefits, you include carbohydrate in your race day plan? Yeah, that's a concept that I've heard a lot or like that you have to, you know, do like a carb depletion, um, you know, and then and then add it back in like right before a run. Um, yeah, the train low race high aspect is, again, the thought is kind of, okay, we can make it harder for the body during training. So it feels easier on race day. Um, and I kind of, you know, I get it. I get where that comes from. The, again, the caveat is that that is, does not give us better outcomes than training with what we need and also racing with what we need. Um, when it comes to kind of the research outcomes and some of the analyses of several studies that are out there comparing, um, a bunch of different like carb loading or training strategies, typically training low racing high does not yield a better outcome than training with what we need and racing with what we need. If anything, there's more risk because you're not used to taking in that many carbohydrates during your training. So then if you all of a sudden add it while you're racing, your body's not used to that. So it can backfire. Um, and even if there was going to be, you know, a performance benefit from adding in the extra carbs, maybe you have GI distress or maybe you gag a lot because you are not used to taking gels or you slow down because you can't get them open or, you know, whatever the logistical pieces. Um, so that's not typically something I recommend. The other aspect is training fatigue is real. Like we kind of train in a bunker <laughs> over time and then, you know, we recover from the bunker so we can come out of the bunker and race with fresh legs. Um, so if you're never giving your body what it needs during training or you're not, you know, giving it the, um, the best chance it can have to do well with those training adaptations. One, you might get injured. You might break down. Um, two, you might burn out because you're exhausted or end up with like nutrient deficiencies or hormone or gut related issues. Um, and three, you might not get as much out of your training because you're so tired <laughs> all the time. Um, so that's something that I see happen a lot with people who come to me, you know, two weeks, one week before their race. And they're like, okay, I want a race fuel plan. Cause I want to learn how to carb load properly. And I'm like, okay, well, how much do you eat during your typical training day? And it's not nearly enough. Um, you know, I'm probably not going to tell them to carb load to their fullest capacity because their body's not used to that. And it's probably going to end up again with some risk. So we might need to build up to that next time, which is why I typically don't see people one to two weeks before their race, if I've never worked with them before, because um, I don't want to give them a carb loading plan that's six times the amount of carbohydrates that they're typically used to eating when it's supposed to feel like a gentle scale up from a typical training day um, and have them end up with like GI issues or feeling terrible. 
What about when you have athletes who say that eating low carbohydrate helps them with, you know, pr- uh, curb binge eating behaviors, or they feel like they have more control over their diet when they're not including a lot of carbohydrates, or that they feel like when they eat a lot of carbohydrates, they are experiencing some sort of like inflammatory response, like they almost feel like they have an allergic reaction, like their sinuses get stuffy, or maybe their joints swell up, um, because those are very real like experiences people are having, right? If somebody is saying, but I, this thing is helping me in this way, or when I eat carbohydrates, I have this thing that happens to me and it doesn't feel very good. You know, what are we seeing here? Yeah. And that's exactly, it. it's kind of like starting from one end of the spectrum and then, you know, jumping over several steps to the other end of the spectrum. A lot of the times if someone's like following a lower carbohydrate diet, and that, or they're just feeling very restricted in general. And they feel like if they do add more carbs in or specific types of carbs in, they feel like inflamed or they get a rash or they have gut issues or yeah, they, you know, they have those symptoms. Sometimes it's that, you know, they're not adding it in gradually enough for their body to, you know, have a chance to respond well to it. It can be too all or nothing, which I see actually quite a lot is folks who try to be too far on the low end of the spectrum are going to end up boomeranging, you know, to the higher end of the spectrum because they feel restricted. So therefore they're more likely to binge. Um, For folks who have legit medical conditions where they maybe are somewhere in the middle, (laughs) um, that's something that really depends on the individual. You know, if you have taken any food out of your diet for a long period of time, whether that's carbohydrates in general, or I'll have people who are, you know, plant-based and then they start adding in seafood or eggs or meat products, um, or, you know, because they want to, um, it's not like I make people do that. Um, (laughs) or, you know, they don't eat gluten and then they're trying to add gluten back in or something like that, or dairy is another one. If you take anything out of your diet, um, people always think it's just that simple. Like there's a lot that actually happens to your body when you don't eat certain things. So We have a digestive tract um, in our colon, our large intestine. Primarily, we have most of our um, microbiota and like, which is our gut microbiome, bunch of bacteria, like pounds of bacteria live there. Um, So whenever we kind of take something away, um, we really want our gut bacteria to be like abundant and also diverse. Like we want to have a lot of different species in there because they all can kind of handle different things for us. They can digest foods differently, provide us with different nutrients. So if you do start to take away, you know, certain foods, it can impact the status of that microbiome. Maybe we end up with a less diverse microbiome. So then when we add that food back in, we don't really have the tools we need to do what we need to do with it. Um, Or same thing if someone just isn't like eating dairy, you know, our body will probably over time produce less lactase, which is the enzyme we need to digest the lactose, sugar, and dairy. So if we all of a sudden eat a bunch of dairy, we don't have the enzyme we need to break it down. Yeah, we're probably going to end up with some some side effects. So it's never quite as simple as like, oh, I didn't eat, you know, this for a long time, and then I can just add it back in and have it be fine. Like some people experience that. But for a lot of people, sometimes it almost gets worse before it gets better or we have to do it in a strategic way to make sure their body has the tools it needs to like handle that food properly. Um, which is why working with a professional can be so important. So we can kind of like hold your hand as we're like, you know, working through that process. Cause I would, I would totally understand 
why someone, I've done this, why someone would add a food back in, have it not go well, and then be like, oh, it must be that I can't have that food. I'm never having it again. Yeah. I thought I was gluten sensitive for like five years. Me too. No. Yeah. I like just, I just didn't eat enough gluten and also had like a bunch of other issues going on (laughs) because I wasn't eating any carbs. And your point about, you know, that people tend to kind of swing, you know, kind of boomerang. Um, and I found this myself too, is that, you know, on the, the, the occasions when I'd be like, oh, I'm, I'm eating carbs and he was on vacation. Like it wouldn't just be a piece of bread with dinner, right? It would be the bread basket. And then it would be a carb heavy appetizer and then it would be, you know, pasta and then it would be dessert. Right. So I would go from essentially eating less than 100 grams of carbohydrate per day. And I, at this time I was running like 70 miles a week. Right. I was running a lot. And then to like, you know, 800 grams of carbs in a day, which is like the high end of a carb load for somebody who's my body size. You know, so, yeah, of course. What was I expecting? Of course, you know, my body would be like, what did you just do? Yeah. Or <laughs> You're I'll, not prepared for I'll this. have people say, oh, I tried to carb load, you know, the way like a certain like a dietitian told me to carb load or said they carb load on Instagram and they do it by eating 10 bagels a day. So I ate 10 bagels a day, but it went terrible. And I'm like, well, have you do you eat bagels in your daily life? And they're like, well, no. I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> that makes sense. Like, you know, your body is not used to that. For some people, maybe they eat enough gluten-containing bagel-esque products where that's fine. I have clients who do that and that works great for them. And other people that maybe not may not be like the best food to eat a large amount of because you're not used to that. Maybe you need more variety. Um, so yeah, I mean, the the other piece of this that's like, humans are not lab rats in a vacuum, Uh, research is imperfect, is that we haven't even gotten into like the relationship with food peace, right? Like you can tell someone to eat a certain way all day long, but if there's like a legit barrier to them doing so that has to do with their body image, their relationship with food, their food preferences, what they have access to, what's realistic for them, they're never going to do it. Um, Or there's going to be, you know, another like hurdle that we have to overcome in order to do it. And that's a pattern I see often with my population who has struggled with disordered eating or not having a great relationship with food or eating disorders is that they restrict from carbs. Yeah, they can tell themselves and me it's for performance gains or, you know, it's to improve their marathon time, but they also, you know, want body composition outcomes or they have fears around eating carbohydrates because of the messages that are sent in the media right now that carbs make you fat, which is not true. So that's why they restrict. And then we know that if you are intentionally restricting a product for those reasons, it can almost always lead to like binging on it later um, or having to make up for it in some way. So then if they do overeat that food, you know, you you can't keep Oreos in the house because you'll eat them. And then you get Oreos in the house and you eat the whole box yeah, you're going to end up with symptoms. Um, so, and then it, but it, then it's, it's so easy for the person to then say, see, look, mm-hmm. I was proved right. Right. Oh yeah. Because nobody feels good. Nobody, even if you are carb adapted, nobody eating a box of Oreos doesn't feel great. Right. right? <laughs> so then you can say, well, I just proved, I just proved myself right because carbs did make me feel bad. And I do have this, you know, physical, emotional, and mental turmoil and, you know, you know, shame spiral that I enter into when I eat carbs. Therefore I am now reinforced in my decision to continue to restrict carbohydrates. 1000%. Um, it's so true. And like, that's also where if we were to follow someone in a short-term study, the outcome would be, oh yeah, don't keep Oreos in the house. You're going to binge on them. That's the outcome of the study. Um, but you know, we know exposure therapy, which does have research behind it. Like that stuff takes time. Um, so 
you know, maybe you keep warriors in the house for a couple of years and all of a sudden they're not that special and you have control around them again because they're not that special, which is a whole different topic. But I know carbs and low carb often can, can overlap, you know, with that topic too. So that's definitely a big piece of what I do as well is trying to understand why we eat the way that we eat. Do you want to be low carb because a doctor told you you should for medical reasons? Is it because of some guy on the internet said it would have performance, you know, outcomes and their science to back it up. Sounds legit. Going to try it. Is it for body composition purposes? Because, you know, you follow a bodybuilder or fitness model on the internet and they, you know, like eggs for breakfast, salad for lunch and chicken and rice and broccoli for dinner. And you're like, I want to look like them. So I'm going to eat like them. Um, you know, there's a lot of different reasons why we do what we do. Um, so that's also a big piece of, of my work too. Let's talk about some of the, as you've mentioned, kind of the risks associated with restricting carbohydrate as an active individual. Uh, what are So here's the thing. As I said at the beginning of this episode, this is going to be a nuanced conversation, right? I think we've acknowledged that in certain situations, there can be things that may confer a specific benefit of some type in certain situations, right? Like you said, there may be people who, for whatever their specific reason, are going to want to pursue a low carbohydrate diet to help them achieve their specific goals because the benefits of improving fat oxidation and maybe whatever their nutrient macronutrient availability is going to be whatever the reason they feel like that is going to be beneficial for them um but setting all of that aside right because we're this is not like a black and white it's not like we're saying there are zero benefits there may for some people in certain situations may, may be some benefits but there's also a lot of research that outlines what the risks are of engaging in carbohydrate restriction as an active individual. What is the research saying on this? People hate the gray area, <laughs> which is where we live, right? Um, yeah, so some of the risks, and I see these all the time. So if you are restricting any food or any like large macronutrient group of foods, like carbohydrates is a macronutrient that contributes to our total caloric intake, um, there's going to be risk of you not eating enough food in general, um, you know, not meeting your total energy needs. And we know that probably at least half of endurance athletes, it's a, a rough estimation from some of the research out there on like college athletes and elite athletes, um, and in different like endurance athletic sports. But we know that a lot of them, um, maybe half, maybe more, maybe a little less, are not eating enough, um, you know, are in a low energy availability state, which can lead over time chronically to a condition called REDS, which is relative energy deficiency in sport, which affects every body system. Um, you know, and again, this doesn't happen overnight and fixing it <laughs> doesn't happen overnight either. Um, so that's something that can happen to people because of potentially restricting a certain macronutrient. And because I know the population I'm talking to, you know, is potentially at high risk for that, um, you know, that's definitely one I want to mention first and foremost. Um, secondly, is kind of like GI distress, which you can have GI distress when you have REDS or low energy availability chronically over time for different reasons, kind of that I talked about a little bit having to do with, are you giving your body enough food to make the juices it needs to do stuff with that food. Um, but also it can be because maybe you're just not eating enough carbohydrates in general. Um, carbohydrates can, they're typically foods like our grains, you know, our fruits, our vegetables, 
Um, yes, vegetables have carbohydrates in them. Um, and these foods are also high in fiber, um, which actually feed the bacteria in our gut in a positive way and they keep them healthy. So for some people, um, you know, if they're not getting in enough carbohydrates, they may not be getting in enough fiber to support like healthy bowel movements, which is really important for a lot of different reasons. Um, maybe it's not giving them enough carbohydrates, you know, to maintain a consistent microbiome. Maybe also just because they're not eating a lot of carbohydrates and they're relying on other foods for energy, like higher fat foods, maybe higher protein foods, which digest very slowly. Um, that's actually causing like GI issues when they're running. Um, that's something that I see often as well is just like, are the foods that you're choosing, especially like before your runs, um, are they kind of like sitting well? <laughs> um, and for a lot of people, high fat and high protein, which are low carb foods, um, don't sit super well um, from a GI perspective. So those are kind of some of the bigger ones um, that I tend to see. And I mean, the other, like, if we kind of were to think of it as like a tree, it's like not enough energy, <laughs> potential GI symptoms. And then under not enough energy is like another tree of symptoms that can be like stress fractures, injuries, um, hormone issues, fertility issues, mood issues. If we're not eating enough food that can cause or worsen conditions like anxiety. Um, so, you know, there's kind of a lot that can go into that, that is kind of like indirect. It does seem like the research is suggesting that female athletes in particular are more sensitive to carbohydrate, carbohydrate restriction than male athletes are. Uh, especially when we're in, well, I mean, literally like at any time across our lifespan, but especially when we're approaching things like perimenopause or postmenopausal, which is a time of body composition changes as the hormones in our body change. And I know plenty of menopausal and postmenopausal athletes who double down on that carbohydrate, carbohydrate restriction and increase their time on feet uh, as a way to try to combat some of those changes in the way that their body is composed of as they age. Yeah. Yeah. Females do tend to be more carbohydrate sensitive um, and more like energy calorie sensitive too. Like if we are not getting enough carbohydrates or if we're just not getting enough total calories, um, our bodies tend to really, that causes stress <laughs> a lot quicker, um, like a stress response a lot quicker than it does for like our male counterparts. Um, which is why some of the research too is problematic, right? Because it's a lot of it is on male endurance athletes. Um, so even if there is a benefit or no difference as the outcome, it's for males. Um, so when we kind of have that translated to females, it may not go as well. Females are still humans. We're still the same species. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of the stuff does still apply to us, even though we have a different hormone situation happening. Um, but because our hormone situation happening is much more complex than our male counterparts, you know, we have a monthly cycle. Eventually that peters out as we go through menopause. But, um, yeah, that's just that's a bit more sensitive when we change our diet um, for better or for worse. There's also things that we've looked at with cortisol responses and changes in testosterone. Men and women have testosterone. Testosterone is awesome to help you build muscle and like repair things. That's why it's one of the things you're not allowed to take if you're a professional athlete because it's technically doping. Uh, it's that beneficial for you. Um, but that carbohydrate restriction can 
elevate cortisol in when we don't want it to be elevated and it can decrease testosterone, which we don't want to have happen if we're trying to repair and rebuild stuff that over time, I mean, and this is the thing too, you know, I think it's really hard for people to look at like, you know, I did it one day, I did it for one week, I did it for one month and that just like I talk about with your running, like nothing happens overnight, you know, all of these things. And you said at the beginning of the episode, like you're fine until you're not fine. And when you become not fine, you you become really not fine. Like things are bad. Yeah. And I know the, the knee jerk reaction is just, I got to do it harder. Um, right. Because you're like, I got to that good place by doing whatever I was doing in the first place. So now that I'm there, but it's getting harder, I must just have to do it harder. Um, which is a red flag. <laughs> um, you know, like we shouldn't have to like, again, it doesn't make sense to restrict harder to do more epic things in terms of performance. Um, like it'd be like telling a car to drive faster and farther than it's ever driven, but we're not going to give it gas. Like that doesn't make sense. Um, we could become maybe more fuel efficient, but <laughs> we still need to give it gas. So um, I think with, with that too, a lot of the times what needs to happen, yeah, can be like, actually we need to rest and like eat more carbohydrates, which is terrifying for people to hear because they're like, well, when I do that, I don't feel good. I gain weight and then I feel worse mentally, you know, and therefore physically. Um, but again, it's not that simple. Like, you know, just because you can do that for a couple of weeks and feel that way, or even a couple of months, but it took you years to get to that point. It doesn't mean you're going to come out of it that quickly. Um, which is why I, you know, I'm a big proponent of the messy middle, the gray area, like where, where things are not black and white, because, um, you know, if you're doing extreme restriction, um, yeah, you might end up in a bad place. That's going to take a lot more effort to get out of, especially if you do end up with that condition called reds, where you've got like a lot, like you said, you feel bad. Like you got a lot of different stuff going on. Maybe you've got recurrent injuries, your, you know, menstrual cycle is kind of messed up, or you're not getting one if you're, you know, a female athlete. Um, or if you're a guy, you have no sex drive, you know, no morning erections, like can't put on muscle mass, also getting injured. That can be, you know, you don't get a monthly report card when you're a guy because you don't have a menstrual cycle. But those are some other not so subtle signs to pay attention to that I talk about a lot with my male athletes that I wish more male athletes would talk about um, amongst each other. <laughs> um, and, you know, maybe you've got GI distress going on too, which sometimes the knee jerk reaction is I got GI distress. I'm my 10 safe foods that I have, I'm just, that's going to turn into five safe foods. I'm going to restrict harder, which just makes it worse. I want to talk about, um, as we're, as we're starting to wrap up here, um, the, this is the crossover of mainstream diet culture in endurance athletes who live in larger bodies. Um, because I feel like, and people don't even feel like I've had people say this to me. They're like, thinking, you know, sometimes I feel like traditional endurance nutrition advice doesn't apply to me because I am not, you know, I don't look like an elite runner, right? Um, you know, because they are in a larger body and they feel like when we're saying things like you need to eat before your run, you need to eat after your run, you need to make sure your long runs are filled, you need to eat regularly throughout the day, like it's important for you to fuel your body. They 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 then think but that can't apply to me because I have been told my entire life or my entire adult life that because of the way that I look, I should be eating less. Yeah. Whether that's carbohydrate restriction or just overall caloric restriction, 
how can we help those athletes? Yeah, I hear that all the time too. And I, I agree with them and I don't agree with them, right? Like I get where they're coming from. And I do think some of it is valid because like I said, the research that's being done on endurance athletes, it's it's not in larger body endurance, endurance athletes, right? And a lot of it's in young, thin male endurance athletes who kind of do all have a certain body type. Um, so just like if we have research findings on them and I say it doesn't necessarily maybe apply to women as directly. Yeah. It may not apply to someone who's in a much larger body as directly, but it doesn't mean that we don't do it at all. <laughs> um, so certain things like carbohydrate loading, a lot of the calculators out there are by weight. Um, so yeah, if you're someone in a larger body, you might be doing that calculation thinking I have to eat over a thousand grams of carbohydrate to carb load. And a lot of carb loading physiology has to do with how much muscle mass you have because carbohydrates and glycogen is stored in muscles. So if you do have a certain amount of muscle mass and then, you know, extra body fat compared to someone who might have the same amount of muscle mass and less body fat, then yeah, like your, your carb loading calculator might not quite be individualized enough for you. And it might be shooting, you know, way too high. Um, and a lot of people don't just walk around knowing how much muscle mass they have in a, in a quantitative number. Um, not that you, not that I even really want them to, cause yeah, I don't think we need to measure everything, but some things like that, I can kind of see, you know, where they're right. You know, there is going to be maybe a slightly different recommendation, but the recommendation is that we're still carb loading and we're still carb loading per, you know, what's right for us. We're not just like not carb loading because we're quote unquote a fat runner, right? Like, no, that's not it at all. Um, and same thing with like taking gels during the run or adding, you know, sports nutrition um, before, during, and after your runs. I know a lot of larger bodied runners get the messaging from media. Yeah, you don't want to do that because you don't want to gain more weight and become a larger, even larger bodied runner because that's, you know, that the message is that that's a bad thing. Um, and that's just not true. Like we do absolutely still need to apply sports nutrition principles to all different sizes of runners. Um, and it doesn't become like more scarce or less just because you're in a larger body. Um, you know, if anything, it might actually be more, you know, if you're in a larger body, because some of this is by weight. And if you do have more muscle mass on you, yeah, you might need more than a smaller counterpart who's an elite marathoner, you know, who weighs a hundred pounds. Um, and it's really problematic because some of the messaging too is like, you know, or some of the things that people tell me in all sizes of bodies is that they started running to lose weight. Um, you know, so they're kind of trying to shift their mindset now that they've fallen in love with the sport, you know, away from restriction, running as a punishment to get rid of excess body fat into actually, I want to take the body that I have and I want to make it perform better. <laughs> um, you know, cause the nutrition for that is different, but you know, than it is for weight loss, but the sports nutrition principles still absolutely apply to someone who's in a larger body. And they also apply to someone who's a quote unquote slower runner. I know that's another question I get a lot too. Yeah, absolutely. I've also, and I want to finish up here by again, this is a, this is a 
topic without a definitive answer intentionally, right? And I think we all want, we all want the yes or no, we all want the black, we want the guarantee, right? Oh, I want my tune-up race to guarantee what time I'm going to run in my actual A race. I want to, I want to know exactly what I should eat gram by gram to get exactly all the things that I want out of life, right? It's just not how any of this works, um, no matter how much we want it to. But there are, there is a subset of the population who have been eating very low carbohydrate diets for a long, long time. And we're talking about a very small subset, right? Um, And they seem to be doing fine. And I mean, that's just like, we're all a little bit different, right? (laughs) I also tend to notice that those people who the, the, the long-term, very low carb athletes are almost overwhelmingly men. Yeah. Not a lot of women who've been doing super low carb endurance performance, you know, top of their field for 20 years. It's all men. Yeah. A lot of the times that's true. It's so funny too. Like the the small subset where that's working well for them clearly for long periods of time. One, I'm like, can you get research studies done on you, please? Since (laughs) since you followed this for so long, like I would love to learn. Nutrition's always, the science is always changing. Um, You know, even. Yeah. Like what is it about, what is it that works for them? Right. Is it, you know, is it just maybe there's something genetically that is allows them to you know, thrive in this way, or maybe there's something I, like we don't know, right? What is it? But there are some people. There are some. This is the anecdotal stuff, right? Yeah. There are some people for whom this appears to work very well, even though it is a very, very small subset of the population. Totally, it's small subset, and for some people too. Like I always kind of say, for any population, whether it's like people all over the world and there's just not that many of them, or it's like a subset of people in a certain culture, like who live in one place. I always kind of like to, to know like, well, what's their environment? Like, what are their activities like daily living? Like, what are they doing every day? What foods are they eating every day? What does their blood work look like? How did their energy levels feel? Are there any fluctuations over the course of years where they've had to tweak things based off of metabolic adaptations or changes in the environment? Um, Cause I think some of that's, probably super valid. It still doesn't mean that it applies to the rest of the world. (laughs) Um, right. It's just, it's like, okay, if you have like this certain subset of environmental conditions, maybe genetic makeup goals, um, blood work patterns that are trending in a certain way, um, or disease states, that type of thing, then yeah, maybe this set of eating principles would work well for you. And for that person too, maybe it would be realistic because their body likes it and it, it's always easier, I think, for us to do something when we get that positive feedback from our own body and we feel good. Um, just like some people might try something and be like, that's terrible. I feel awful. And I still feel awful after doing it for several months or years. So I'm not going to do that anymore. It's like I'm swimming upstream. Um, so yeah, I mean, I always think that that's super interesting and that I want to learn more about it. And also, it doesn't mean it applies to every single other person that I talk to, especially the, you know, couple thousand people that follow me on social media that I'm just putting general education out there for based off of evidence that I've read. Um, So kind of everything with a grain of salt. And I think it's very important that we always acknowledge, as I like to be very real here about when people are trying to take your money from you and what they're saying in order to get you to part with your sweet, sweet dollars, that if somebody is trying to sell you a way of eating, promising that you will be like magically healed of literally everything, or that you will look like them if you eat like them, nobody can promise you that. 
they'll sell it to you, but that doesn't mean that that's what you're going to get from it. Red flag. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. If they're kind of promising, you know, it'll heal your disease or that you'll look like them or it'll bring you all the happiness in the world. Um, that's a sales tactic. No one can really promise you that. Um, it's so funny too. Like a lot of my generic, like informational posts on Instagram, like people hate facts and science. Like none of those get a good engagement. Right. But if we talk about the more touchy feely subjects around how we feel, that's what people can relate to and translate to their own lives. So when there's kind of conversely a sales tactic around wanting to sell a certain diet or a certain way of living or a subscription to a certain, like a program, um, you know, I always kind of tell people again, to look for, um, is like the science they're using applicable to you? Are you a white sedentary male or are you, you know, if it's intermittent fasting, are you like a white, thin, young endurance athlete who is a male? That's probably for, you know, low carb um, or fat adaptation. And then second, are they demonizing a food group (laughs) or are they demonizing a certain nutrient? Because nothing's bad. Like fat's not bad. We did a whole, you know, talk today about low carb and that carbs are probably a good thing. I never said fat was bad or protein was bad. Um, they're all very necessary <laughs> for our overall health. Um, so kind of any demon- demonization of a certain nutrient or food group, and that's like applying to everyone. They're not like specifying a certain population um, using, you know, evidence-backed sources. That's a red flag. Um, so, or if they're using before and after or transformational pictures to sell a certain product. I mean, again, I always kind of am like, what happened to that person in the after photo after the photo was taken? Like, cause usually I see them a year later, you know, when they're running into issues, um, you know, are they still happier? Are they still successful? Is their blood work good in that photo? Is their mental health good in that photo? Even though they're smiling, we don't really know. Um, so there's just some red flags to look out for, to put your skeptical glasses on <laughs> when you're looking at the internet. Yep. Absolutely. And this is and it's tough, too, because, you know, the way that the we're becoming more sophisticated as consumers, I feel. But, you know, the people who are selling things to us and I'm not going to I'm not going to pretend that we're you know, we're both business women or both entrepreneurs. I own my own business. You own your own business. Right. We're we are here to also sell goods and services to people. Um, But there but there are ways to do that that are scammy. And there are ways to do that that are like legit, like, hey, this might work for you. And if it doesn't, there's probably other things that might work for you versus this is the one thing that you need to change your life literally forever. And I'm the only, here's my other favorite thing. They're somehow the only one who knows this one amazing secret that like, what, nobody else has heard of, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> the more extreme people are, so, yeah. the more followers they have. Like, um, you know, the the more interesting it is for people to look at, for sure. And absolutely, mm-hmm. I have goods and services. I'm a healthcare professional. All healthcare professionals have some sort of good or service or product that they're trying to sell. Um you know, and get paid to provide information on. But yeah, I mean, I agree. My clients always laugh at me because they'll ask the ones that do pay me, you know, like they'll ask me a question and I'm like, well, it depends. <laughs> um, you know, and then I have to talk to them for an extra 30 minutes about why it depends and then end it with why I think it is or is not a good idea for them specifically knowing what I know about their health history, which is why if you reach out to me on Instagram, you know, two weeks before your marathon and you say, I love your stuff been following you. I don't think I eat enough carbohydrates based off of what you've, you know, put on the internet and that I've, you know, extrapolated to apply to myself. 
but how do I carb load for my race? I'm going to say, I don't know. I don't know how you should carb load for your race. I don't know you. I haven't done a full assessment on you. I haven't gotten to know what your health looks like, what your body responds well to, because that's stuff that I do with my clients across my various programs. Um, but you know, if I kind of can get to know you, I can definitely give you like a better answer that is more, um, that you deserve. Like, you know, that's more thoughtful than me just saying, here's my carb loading calculator, plug some numbers in, you know, on the internet, and then you have a bad time with it and you never want to carb load again (laughs) after that, um, that experience. So yeah, a lot of the times professionals, you know, who live in the gray area, um, may not have as sexy of information to share, (laughs) but, um, it's more applicable to most of us. Yeah. And also, I mean, for me, I, you know, I sleep at night because I know I'm not trying to scam people. <laughs> totally, right. <laughs> totally. The, the amount of overthinking I do, like to make sure I'm not, you know, saying anything that people like that could hurt someone. Like, you know, I don't want to harm anyone's health. I definitely don't get paid by big food of anything, um, you know, to spout out information from the government. Like I know a lot of people say about dietitians, I have yet to receive that check from like big dairy or whatever. Um, you know, it's like, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, we're very careful. We're very intentional. We take a, you know, oath to do no harm. Um, and I take it very seriously for sure. I know you do too, even though you're not a dietitian, you know, I think too, whenever I read research, I'm like, oh, am I going to have to go and like, you know, update people on my new opinion based off of new research? Like that's going to be messy, but like, that's something I'll have to do. And that's going to have to be something we figure out, you know, um, it, it's definitely changing and it's definitely very, very nuanced. Um, you know, we used to tell people 20 years ago, you know, cut fat out of, out of your diet is like the opposite of what mainstream media says now. So, um, yeah, it's, it's so true. And even just to kind of help wrap this up, um, you had made me think of, of this when you were saying something before, but there is a thing that we can do. Like if you're in the middle of a marathon and you can't like stomach a gel or you just are like at mile 23 and you're taking your last gel and you just don't want to, or your stomach's off. If you literally put the gel or a carb containing sports drink like Gatorade into your mouth and then spit it out, that is better for your performance than not putting the carbohydrate into your body at all. So my argument is always, if they're so good for us that even when we put them into our mouth and spit them out, cause there's sensors in our mouth that go straight to our brain to receive glucose. Um, then imagine what would happen if you swallowed it. <laughs> like, uh, right. Um, you know, that's definitely a trick I can tell people to use if they're in a pinch that people have used and I've used myself and has worked well and is definitely backed by just by research, just like a funny little tip. Um, you know, carbs are definitely, they're good for us. <laughs> Yeah. I love that. And it's so funny that now you bring that up and I know we're like out of time here, but, um, I, I think I even read not a, it was like a, a news piece. So it's like, you can get the same performance benefit if you swish sports drink than if you drink it. And I was like, first of all, it's not the same. No, what a right? way to spend that. Right? <laughs> right. Right. It'd be like, oh, so I'm just going to buy this thing and I'm going to put it in my mouth and I'm going to spit it out. So I get some small benefit, but not all the benefit. Yeah. And then, so what, because we're so afraid of sugar, Mm -hmm. we didn't even get into the whole, you know, insulin response when you're running, like it's an entirely separate conversation, but yeah, um, I think we covered some good ground in the time we had available. Yeah. We took crazy what people write articles about. We took like a fun (laughs) sports nutrition tip backed by evidence and turned it into like 
politically and socially okay purging. That's wild. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Like, don't swallow the Gatorade sugar bad. Yeah. Spit, spit it, it out, out instead. <laughs> Crazy. Right? Yeah. No, that's that's called an eating disorder. Yeah. If you can't <laughs> swallow it, that's one thing. But if you can, that is preferred. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Holly, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, I, I refer a ton of clients to you for just your general amazing education, but also to work with you in one-on-one. And if somebody is interested in learning more about working with you in any capacity, what you got for us? Yeah. Thank you so much. I feel the same about you. Your page is great. Um, and you truly explain everything about running. So good job. Uh, I refer so many people to your page and podcast. Um, but yeah, if people do want to work with me, I've got a couple different programs going on, got some groups, um, some group nutrition and also training programs happening this summer. Um, I got my Chicago marathon group that I have a few spots left. Um, which is super fun. I love having people train for the same race and talk like nutrition and stuff. Um, I don't know. I think we learn more from each other that way. Um, I also have a non-race specific group for just general fall races that starts in August. Um, my Strong Runner Academy group coaching program. So two groups going on that you can go check out and also have a lot of online courses um, and my masterclass membership as well. I do one monthly masterclass on a different topic um, you can go check out any of the past recordings, check out the current ones that I'm doing or subscribe to the membership to get all of them. Um, all of that's on my website. So that's hollyfuelednutrition.com, or you can follow me on Instagram, which is kind of like my main informational platform, which is Hollyfueled Nutrition, or you can check out the Hollyfueled Nutrition podcast. And my name is spelled H-O-L-L-E-Y. So just don't forget the E when you put Holly and everything. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll link everything below in the show notes people can find and follow you and learn more if they haven't been following you already thank you so much for being here it's a great conversation thank you I hope you've enjoyed this episode don't forget you can always find and follow me on Instagram at running explained and if you're looking for a coach or a training plan check me out visit my website runningexplained.co that's runningexplained.co see you next time This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.